0: Christchurch, New Malden, 8th of September 2019, 6.30 service. Becky Mills speaking on Understanding the Covenant with Abraham. Right, so Understanding the Covenant with Abraham. God's covenant relationship with us is one of the most important themes in the Bible. The term covenant is used 285 times in the Old Testament and 33 times in the New In the Old Testament, it provides the scaffolding for God's relationship with his people and focuses on characters like Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob and David. In the New Testament, Paul wrestles with the implications of Jesus' death and resurrection against the backdrop of the covenant relationship described in the Old Testament and he connects the two together. Jesus, instigated the Covenant meal at the Last Supper in Matthew 26, 28. Then he took the cup, gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the Covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. This quickly becomes the central symbolic act of all believers. It's his only specific mention of covenant. Yet the timing, the night before he died, and the summing up of his entire calling in this way must reveal exactly what was going on in Jesus's mind. So what is actually meant by covenant? How was it used in the ancient world? Why is it so crucial to our understanding of the gospel message of freedom from the consequences of sin for all who are willing to receive it and turn their lives around. In my talk tonight, I would like to unpack God's covenant with Abraham and how his never-ending faithfulness has been shown since those early promises he made nearly 2,000 years before their eventual fulfillment in the birth of Jesus. What's important about God's covenant with Abraham is that it's eternal, universal and conditional. And those are my three main points in my talk tonight. The Hebrew term for covenant means bond or fetter, a chain on an animal's hoof. It was a type of social contract common in the secular world in ancient times. It describes a solemn commitment between two groups of people where promises are exchanged and duties and obligations are laid out. One party would dominate and demand absolute loyalty and service, while the other party would receive protection and possibly land. I guess a contract of employment would be the nearest to this in everyday life today. The employer promises to pay a salary and occasionally offer temporary accommodation. The employee promises to fulfill the job description as best they can, sign up to the ethical vision of the company and agree to abide by certain rules of conduct. If they breach them, then there are sanctions. The employer at the same time agrees to protect the welfare of his or her employee and promote their well-being. You sign to promise that you will abide by all the conditions of employment and you might get to wear a uniform or badge or something similar as a visible sign of the contract you've made. This shows you are now officially part of that company or organization. Covenant agreements in the Old Testament may have had an oath. A modern equivalent would be presidents of the US wearing an oath of allegiance. They may have sanctions or punishments. A modern equivalent, again, would be impeachment of a president. Witnesses, which is still required today with important contracts and legal agreements. And a physical sign or symbol of the covenant agreement. And the fundamental one was, of course, um, circumcision. Now, the vital difference between a contract of employment or secular covenant in the ancient world is of course that though the relationship with an employer may be long term, God's covenant relationship with his people is for all eternity. God's amazing covenant faithfulness continues throughout history, however far his covenant people stray from keeping their side of the bargain. The first actual reference to covenant is about God's selection of Noah and his family, to further his purposes for the whole of the created order. And as Ruth explained so clearly to us last week, God's covenant with Noah echoes the commissioning of Adam as steward of creation. The covenant with Noah is forever. God promises to preserve life on earth without further divine interruptions. So let's narrow down our vision and put a microscope over God's covenant with Abraham. At the opening of Genesis 12, we read, the Lord had said to Abraham, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you." So Abraham comes out of Ur of the Chaldees, modern day Iraq, and travels to Canaan, the land of promise, modern day Israel, Palestine, and settles there with all of his family. In the next chapter, chapter 13, violence breaks out between Abraham's herders and his nephew Lot's. Abraham offers him the choice of land, and Lot goes for the well-watered plains of the Jordan. As soon as Lot left, God came to Abraham and promised him that he will restore to him all the land he had given up, and his descendants will be as numberless as the dust of the earth. Another act of self-denial takes place in chapter 14, when Abraham rescues Lot, who'd been held captive after a mighty battle between the four kings of local cities. Abraham recovers all Lot's lost possessions on his behalf and refuses to accept any of them for himself. God reassures him by saying in chapter 15, Do not be afraid, Abraham. I am your shield, your very great reward. Abraham replies, What will you give me? Look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then God said to him, so shall your offspring be. Abraham wanted some sort of confirmation of God's promise to him about the land. And he said, sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? God replied, take me a calf of three years old and a female goat of three years old and a ram of three years old and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. Abraham brought the animals and slaughtered them. Next, he cut them in half and arranged the halves opposite each other, apart from the birds that were laid out whole. Then Abraham waited on God, protecting the two rows of carcasses from scavenging birds of prey. And then he fell into a deep sleep, during which he experienced a thick, and dreadful darkness. God revealed to Abraham his descendants' future, including their bondage in Egypt, ultimate deliverance and return to Canaan. Finally, Abraham's experience reached its peak, with God giving him a dramatic sign. As the sun went down and it was dark, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between those pieces. In that same day, the Lord formalized the covenant with Abraham saying, to your descendants, I give this land from the river of Egypt unto the great river, the river Euphrates. Now, this ritual seems very strange to us today. But if we think about it in terms of what happened in the ancient world, then we can get a flavour of the importance of it. Some ancient texts outside the Bible describe covenants or treaties where the cutting or killing of an animal represents what would happen to an inferior person or country who violated an agreement with a superior one. Formalising an agreement is even called cutting a covenant in these ancient texts. Like we might say, a bit of an Americanism I know, cutting a deal today. The offending person or country will be like a slaughtered animal if they break the agreement. In Abraham's vision of the presence of God in the form of fire and smoke passing through the sections of the slaughtered animals, God condescended to cut a covenant with Abraham, staking his life on the promise he had made. In passing between the divided animals, he is in effect swearing an oath that he would lose his own life if he did not give Abraham and his descendants the land for an inheritance. God confirms the same promise to Isaac saying, for to you and your descendants, I will give all these lands and I will confirm the oath which I swore to your father, Abraham. Since God cannot swear by anything greater than his own life, his faithfulness could not have been more certain. This was an extremely powerful message of God's faithfulness to Abraham, who must have been very familiar with covenant-cutting practices in the ancient Near East. With the opening of Genesis chapter 17, just after the birth of Ishmael, God confirms the covenant he has already made with Abraham. As for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abraham. Your name will be Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful I will make nations of you, and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come, to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. His new name, Abraham, marks his new status as the father of many nations. The covenant rises over and above national boundaries. Each and every citizen of the earth will ultimately have access to intimacy with God through Abraham's royal seed. In that sense, the covenant with Abraham is universal. God commands circumcision as a sign confirming the covenant that he's made with Abraham. Circumcision was common practice in the ancient Near East, but was usually associated with puberty, coming of age, and sexual maturity. God was taking a common ritual, a symbol, and investing it with new meaning. It was no longer a mark of human maturity. For the generations to come, God says, every male among you who is eight days old must be circumcised. My covenant in your flesh is to be an everlasting covenant. It was to be a mark, a sign of the people's pledge to God's everlasting covenant faithfulness. It was to be extended to include all those bought with money from a foreigner, those who were not Abraham's offspring, reflecting the universal scope of the covenant. In this chapter, we see two human obligations are fused together, one physical and one spiritual. Circumcision is the physical sign, a constant reminder of the spiritual side of the deal, which is to walk faithfully and blamelessly, keeping God's commands, decrees and instructions. Israel had to maintain the high standards of conduct summed up in God's instructions to Abraham to bring about his ultimate aim, the blessing of all nations through Abraham's royal seed. Breaching the covenant was not treated lightly. The the punishment was immediate. This meant that the blessings of God's covenant with Abraham were conditional, not automatic. This didn't mean that God's covenant came to an end if the covenant agreement was breached by the people. The whole structure for that relationship and potential for intimacy was still intact. Maybe it's helpful to think of the covenant relationship between God and man like the chambers of the human heart. There are heart valves that control the flow of blood through the chambers of the heart. They act as one-way doors, opening to let blood flow in and out of a the chamber. There is a one-way door through which God's everlasting blessings flow, but it closes when there is a breach of the covenant. The blessings cease to flow through. It causes God pain and heartbreak, but the whole organ of the heart, the love relationship of eternal faithfulness remains. God works through the pain and anger of betrayal, and in his great mercy and compassion holds out the promise of future restoration. A time when that one-way door is fully open and operative, allowing his blessings to flow without interruption once again. That's what we mean when we say the covenant with Abraham is conditional. It doesn't mean that once these conditions are breached, the covenant is at an end. It means the covenant blessings cease to flow, but the covenant itself still stands. We experience this very much in our own Christian lives. If we persist in our wrongdoing without repentance, the door through which God's blessings flow is closed. God has promised to meet our repentance with his forgiveness. That promise to restore intimacy and blessing always stands. The pledge that God will give Abraham the land of promise and bless the nations through him, first expressed in chapter 12 and developed in chapters 15 and 17, seemed far from fulfilled at the end of his life. At the last, the only inheritance of the man of faith in the land of promise is a grave. But God is faithful to his promises and those made to Abraham are gloriously coming to fruition in Jesus. God's covenant with us is eternal. His desire for intimacy with us never ceases. It is universal. The promise of land rises above geographical boundaries. It spans the entire earth. The invitation to sup with him at his table is open to everyone, irrespective of race, gender, sexual orientation, or social status. The covenant is conditional upon our repentance. Jesus says in Revelation 3.20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come to him and will sup with him and he with me. Let him in and keep that door permanently open so that God's blessings will flow in abundance into all of your lives. Amen.